Thank you, Dan and Parker and Instrumentalist for beautiful music. We continue our sermon series from the book of Amos. So you have your Bible turned there to Amos chapter 7. The book of Amos, the seventh chapter, God's message rejected. I do want to thank all of you who are working in Bible school. We are projecting to have a thousand children in the morning that first day best based on pre-registration numbers. So we're right on target to have a thousand children here in the morning. And you can imagine the hundreds of volunteers and, and that doesn't happen without your saying yes and stepping up. And we have men and women taking a week's vacation to work Bible school. And we are so grateful. It is a kingdom investment in the lives of these little ones and uh, so grateful for those who are working. Amos 7, God's message rejected. We come to a vision in Amos chapter 7. It's actually the third vision. We'll look at the first two as well in this series of visions in this book. The minor prophet Amos, the first six chapters could be summarized as the words of Amos. The visions of Amos begin in chapter 7 and go through chapter 9, and so today we find ourselves in the Amos series having left the words of Amos, and now we've arrived at those chapters that are the visions of Amos. That first vision happens in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. Look at it. We didn't read that before. Thus says the Lord God showed me, behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it, it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, says the Lord. In this first vision, Amos sees a vision of locusts devouring the crops of the northern tribes. Amos begs God, we are small. We will be devastated if this happens. Do not, oh God, do not let this happen. Then look at verse 3. The Lord changed his mind. Prayer makes a difference. The Lord does change, and the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Amos made a big difference. And then after that first vision of the locust swarm, we have a second vision of fire. Look at verses 4 through 6. Thus says the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling to contend with them by fire, and he consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he's small? And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too should not be, said the Lord God. The first vision was the locust devouring the crops of the northern tribes. And now the second vision is a ball of fire, a fire judgment from God coming and wiping out Israel. And well, Amos prays again and says, we won't be able to stand your righteous fire, O God. Please don't do this. And yet a second time, the Lord changed his mind. But then we come to the third the third vision. In the third vision, the first thing I want you to see is the word never again. 
Never again. Look at beginning of verse 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer, or I will spare them never again. You see, the Lord asked Amos a question. Amos, what do you see? I see a level. I see a plumb line. I see a measuring rod is a translation. When I was growing up, I was a sidekick one summer to a brick mason by the name of Leonard. Now, being a brick mason is a very skilled craft, and I was not a brick mason. Am I being clear? I was a guy who mixed the mortar and carried the bricks. That was my job. And I'll never forget uh, the formula. It is one shovel of masonry cement to three shovels of sand and a whole lot of raking the hoe back and forth with the water to get the mortar ready. It's three to one, add the water. Sometimes I'd bring the, the mortar mix and he would say, Howie, it's way too soupy, take that back. And I'd have to go back and add some mortar and some sand. So I'd come back trying not to be soupy the next time. He'd say, it's dry as dust. I can't lay bricks with that mortar. It's dry as dust. It was hard to get it just right. But one thing I do know, though I was never a master at even mixing the mortar, is he had a string. And as he would lay the brick, the brick had to come just to the point of almost within a hair's breadth of touching the string. Now, if there was a lot of space, you look down that wall, if there was space between the row of brick, the course of bricks, and the string, there was nothing wrong with the string, you see. The string was the plumb line. And the bricks to be straight, to be a straight brick wall, had to follow the plumb line. And if there was space, then he had failed, and he'd have to tear up the course of bricks and start over to follow the plumb line. God's saying, I'm about to be an architect. I'm about to be a superintendent on the construction site. I'm about to take my word. Thus saith the Lord God, it will be the level, the plumb line. I will drop it that I may know exactly, exactly how my people measure up to my word. The plumb line. Well, they're two recipients of this wrath. God, first of all, said in verse 8, never again, and then never again to whom? Look at, look at verse 9. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid to waste. Then I shall rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The two recipients who will never again receive the mercy of God, but are now being measured by the plumb line, first of all, is the places of worship. Whether it's the high places where sometimes they would build shrines and commit idolatry, or whether the sanctuaries that had been erected by Jeroboam I at Bethel and Dan, 
He didn't want the northern tribes meandering back down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And so he constructed these places at Bethel and Dan with the calves so they'd have a, a place to worship. Whether it was the high places or the places at Bethel and Dan that were rivals to Jerusalem, the reality was never again would God tolerate the infidelity of his worshipers at these places of worship. Well, there was a, a second recipient of the never again wrath of God, and that was Jeroboam. This is specifically Jeroboam the second. The father had been Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam would not be tolerated anymore. He would bring down the house of Jeroboam by the sword. Well, he says, verse 8, I will spare them no longer, never again. Another way to translate that is this. I will never again pass over their sins, but rather I'm going to pass through them with a plumb line. I will never again just skip over their sins, but rather I'm passing through them with my measurement of my word. What we need to see is this third vision Unlike the vision of the locust where Amos begs and God relents or the vision of the fire where Amos pleads and God changes his mind, there is no cry from Amos. He knows by now it is hopeless. Amos is silent and God utters those awful words, never again. Scene one, John said to his wife, Never again will you hurt me like this. I just, I won't, I, I can't, I'm not going to forgive you this time. You could feel the pain in his words. His heart was broken and now he was going to break hers. Never again, meaning no more chances. That was the tone of his language. Anne said she could hear a, a finality in his words she'd never heard before. It had happened this time, and she knew it. She could tell there was, there was just something different in his voice this time. Sure, she had hurt him before, and he had hurt her before, but despite the harsh words, had always been able to get it back together again. But, well, this time she heard the words, never again. She shuddered at the implications of his verdict. It sounded so final. Things had gone too far this time. Scene two. He was shocked beyond belief. The words hit him as if words had never hit him before, despite all the other words that the doctor said. It was three words, you have AIDS, that changed everything. Did the doctor say what I thought he said? He thought to himself, surely this is a dream. I'll wake up and I'll not hear those words. There'll be no more AIDS. There'll be no diagnosis. All he could do was remember those words, you have AIDS. Never again would he wake up on a day and be disease-free. Forever he would be haunted by the fact that he had AIDS and he was carrying AIDS and life would never be carefree or worry-free anymore, never again. One stupid, careless act. It had been his choice. He knew there was no one else to blame, but now he lived life in the realm of never again. 
when you hear those words, never again. They're life-changing words. And the last person you want to hear utter those words is Yahweh, who says to the tribes of Israel, never again. Now, we really like those first two visions, don't we? The first where the locusts are about to devour the crops and Amos begs and God changes and sends mercy. Now, I like that vision. Or, or that second vision when the fire is about to rain down and, and God again shows his mercy. It's this third vision that we really don't like, do we? This third vision I bet you don't like it much either. God shows Amos his word, a plumb line, a measuring rod. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty. And this time God does not change or relent, but he says, never again will I pass over their sins, but I will pass through them and measure them according to my word. I don't like that passage in Amos. I, I like Jeremiah the prophet better when Jeremiah says, speaking for God, I will forgive them for their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's the prophet I like. Or I like the psalmist when the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I will separate them from their sins and I will remember their sins no more. As a Christian, I'm really big on the concept of grace and really small on the concept of no more chances. But on this occasion, to these people, God utters those words never again. Yet, there came a time in the life that the prophet could not pray a prayer to stop the wrath of God. There are some times in our lives that our choices that we make irrevocably change things for us and our family and those around us. And, well, we place ourselves in the path of destruction. Each of us has the power within us to change our lives. Sometimes that decision that we make leads to destruction and pain within ourselves and with our family. And sometimes good decisions lead us to hope and life and joy and love. But we do not want to hear those words never again. There's a second thing in this passage, not only never again, but a paid-for prophet, a paid-for prophet. The best I can tell, and I am no authority on the, the topic, is pretty easy to buy expert testimony in today's courtrooms. It happens every day across the courtrooms of America. Someone is called to testify she has, he has a Ph.D. or some other credentials that make 
him or her an absolute expert in their field. They're published in the peer-reviewed journal articles. They are a know-it-all on the topic. But have you ever noticed that when they are questioned, that the amount of money they're paid sort of influences their answers? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that the expert witness for the defense always has the expert opinion that clears the client? Have you ever noticed that? That unbiased expert opinion, if the defense is paying for the expert, the expert has a word of wisdom, undisputed, Dr. So-and-so to clear the client. But have you ever noticed that in another trial, that same expert might give an opinion which, well, in the prosecutor's profit now, brings back a clear guilty verdict. Opinions every day are bought and sold and bartered and exchanged without any real integrity. Pay enough money and somebody will say anything you want her to say or him to say. I'm afraid, however, lest I point my finger to the courtroom, that the notion of a paid-for profit extends far beyond the courtroom and all the way down to the pulpit, does it not? The pulpit of ancient Israel, we will see, and also the pulpits in America today. Jim's remembered when he started out with a lot of fervor in his preaching. Why, he started out as a flame of fire. He said what he thought, and he thought what he said, and he declared, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. He was declaring boldly God's word. He's not sure when it happened, but he looks over his years of ministry, and he realizes that now he worries more about pleasing the people than he does preaching the word of God. It is a subtle slide from the free space of prophetic vision to the entangled web of purchase blindness. Listen to that. It is a subtle slide from the free space of prophetic vision to the entangled web of purchased blindness. It is the process by which the lion's roar from the pulpit becomes a muted, pleasing whisper. A whisper bought by the seduction of power and security. And another would-be prophet has become a tame, kept preacher. As the preacher wises up, he begins to lick his finger and stick it in the wind, test the wind before he dare hurl any homiletical fire anybody's way. It's much easier to, to preach sermons about topics that people want to hear than to get up and preach sermons out of something like Amos, you know. You look at the billboards across America, the promotions for preaching, and you'll see titles that run something like this being promoted. The sermon is about how to have success without stress. The sermon's about how to make good marriages better. The sermon's how to win at life or to be your best self. 
Now, those type sermons are appropriate in small doses, but somehow the dessert has become the main course, the main state of the meat and the preaching repertoire. To draw a crowd in the building, real theology and scripture is reduced to nothing more than self-help from the pulpit. And, well, the preacher focuses on how to help you make it through life, to be a winner, to be a better wife, better husband, better parent, better manager, better entrepreneur. He seeks to build your self-esteem, and the sermons no longer resemble anything like the apostles' theology of the New Testament. But it happens. And I'm not even sure the, the preacher makes a decision that he wants it to happen. It, it just happens when he's tempted to fill a building or pre preach messages at sale or that he gets attaboys from. Yes, we must not just dose out the dessert. It's easy to become a paid-for preacher. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. Then Amaziah says to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away from the land of Judah. And there eat bread, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Maybe that happened to Amaziah. He started out wanting to be a good priest and represent the word of God, but then they set him up his own temple at Bethel and well, by every measure, he was a roaring success. He was in the big league pulpits. He was pastor of the first big church. And you know, you might say it was the National Cathedral because Jeroboam II attended his services. You have to be careful, Amaziah, that you don't become the guardian of the status quo from the pulpit. Where all you are is a profiteering puppet that blesses what the king has already decided. In fact, Amaziah found himself eating at the king's table, and he developed a palate for the king's cuisine, and he wanted to keep the king Jeroboam II happy so the hors d'oeuvres would keep coming his way. About that time, when Amaziah has the church going just like he wants to, Amos shows up, and Amos is not a very popular preacher because he drops the plumb line of God. And he says... Your wealth comes from breaking the backs of the poor. Your abundance comes from injustice against the poor at the city gates. Yes, Amos shows up and says, Yeah, things seem to be going well for you rich class of the northern tribes, but the reality is you have built all of this off of the backs by cheating the poor, and no one wanted to hear it. That didn't sit too well with Amaziah. And so he ratted out on Amos and told the king, Amos is saying that you're going to die and the rest of us are going to exile. So in verse 12, he says, you know what? You're from Judah. You go back to Judah. If you're going to preach that way, maybe they want to hear it in Judah, but we don't want to hear it here. Do you notice the subtle choice of his words? This is the king's sanctuary. 
Jeroboam tells us what we're going to preach here, Amos. And he didn't want to hear what you have to say. Get out of here. Verses 14 to 15, Amos says, man, you called me a seer, which is the word for a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm not even the son of a prophet. I'm a shepherd and a grower of wild figs. And the reality is God called me and told me to come to Israel. And in Israel, I will preach. And he gives those curses that represent war. It'll be devastating, he says. Here's a third thing I want you to see. Not only a paid-for prophet, but thirdly, God and country. God and country. Don't miss something else here in this text. Amaziah was not only a paid-for prophet, he was paid for by the government. We must be very, very careful about baptizing our state with our religion. Baptists have been the folks historically who have always said, I want my church and my state to be separate. I love my country and I will serve my country, but my primary allegiance is to my God and his community, the church. I don't want those to be the same thing. How too often we forget from Constantine to Hitler, every time there's a wedding between the church and the state, the children are diabolical. They are disastrous. It is Baptists who stood in America, our forefathers, who took an unpopular stance and said, America will be a free land of worship that those citizens of our country will be able to worship whenever they want, wherever they want, whomever or whatever they want, that the government has no right to tell us to whom we'll pray, how we'll pray, what we'll say when we pray, and the government cannot tell the pastors what to preach. That is very, very important. For Amaziah was a paid-for prophet the state was wedded with Bethel. And Amaziah saw it as a sanctuary for the king. And he dared not drop the plumb line of God's word. Perhaps we should ask southern preachers who defended slavery from the pulpits in the 19th century or segregation from the pulpits in the 20th century when a minister places his knees under the linen table cloths in the master's house for Sunday dinner, it is difficult to see, much less condemn, the social injustices upon which that table sits. You see, the preachers need to be free to preach the Word of God. Patriotism, I'm all for it but it must be separate from our religion. When the words God and country fit too nicely together in one sentence, you better be careful because history has taught us it is the church that loses in the transaction. Never again, God said. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're on that moment of decision between decisions in your life and for your family that promote death 
or those that promote life, those that promote forgiveness, or those that bring disaster. And before you find yourself in the land of never again, I want to invite you to the land of beginning again. In fact, we find that God does his worst against sin, and he's such a loving God that he does his worst against sin on Calvary. And he himself, in the embodiment of his son, receives his own wrath, that never again wrath of God, that we ourselves can be forgiven and can be free. As God drops the plumb line in our sanctuary today through the words of Amos, we look down that string. Are we laying the bricks of our life in a straight course? Or is there a wobbling gap between thus saith the Lord and the decisions we make? And do we need to come to the grace of God through the cross of Christ Jesus? Let us pray. Oh God, these are clear words from Amos. What a disaster when the king, the government, tells the preacher what he can and cannot say. Amos was called by God to say, Thus saith the Lord God Almighty. To speak words that didn't tickle Jeroboam's ears, but rather rebuked his unrighteousness. Father, may we be a courageous church, not to serve up dessert every Sunday, but rather to listen to thus saith the Lord God Almighty, to hear the words of the apostles and the prophets, to let the, blum, the plumb line hang straight and clear. Maybe there's someone here in this room, oh God, Today, they're on the edge, their toes already hanging off the land of never again. They're about to make a disastrous choice, and this was a divine appointment for him. This was a divine appointment for her. To hear, thus saith the Lord God Almighty, and be called to the forgiving grace of God. Maybe there are others who would come and be a part of this church that will be prophetic and clear about God's word whatever the culture might do, for folks who want to be a part of a community like that, I pray they'd come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.